General H.R. McMaster is a soldier and a scholar, and these days a commentator, one might even say a pundit. His recent essay for National Review is titled Preserving the Warrior Ethos, a contrarian theme in an age where the dominant culture valorizes victims and too many political leaders fail to grasp the nexus between military strength and diplomatic effectiveness. He's here to discuss that and other subjects with me and Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FTD's Center on Military and Political Power, which General McMaster chairs, in addition to serving as the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're with us too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, General, I, listen, I didn't mention all your credentials and all your affiliations. Uh, the list is too long and life is too short, but I do want to do a give you a quick plug for your podcast. It's People don't know it's called Goodfellows, which might suggest you have conversations with Robert De Niro and Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci, but actually it's with Neil Ferguson and John Cochran, and these are always stimulating discussions. I learn a lot from them, so I just want to suggest people listen to Foreign Policy on their way to the grocery store or the shooting range or Pilates class or whatever, and listen to Goodfellows. Uh, on the way home, because uh, it, it's it, it's always a fascinating discussion. Hey, thanks, Cliff. And thanks for the great clarity that you and Brad and FDD bring to the most important challenges and opportunities we're facing internationally. I mean, you really do a tremendous job. And, you know, I just I'll admit that I listened to your podcast when I turn I turn down the volume for the instructors on my Peloton is what I do. And I listen I listen to <laughs> I listen to you instead, Cliff, you and Brad. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but by the way, I just have to say, I, I can imagine, um, uh, you know, Marty Scorsese uh, casting you in, in in Goodfellows. I mean, you you got you've got a got a good look. You'd have to work on your accent because you you need a New Jersey or a New York accent. You know, something like actually, if you think about it, Anthony Fauci, he you could just cast him the way he is with his accent. You know, because he would say things like, oh, "How how am I funny?" I mean, you think science is here to amuse you, right? He'd be, he'd be perfect. Anyway, I, I digress, but I like it. All right, let's start. Let's start with the warrior ethos. So I've, I'm, I'm curious, just what inspired you to write that essay now? Well, I'll take Cliff. I, th- I think that every every few years, right, we we return to false assumptions about the nature of war, you know, and. And I, I see it happening again. You know, like in a, in a previous essay, I called it the vampire fallacy because you just can't kill it. It comes back about every decade, and and it really lately, it's it's really strategic bombing theory in a new guise. The next war will be fast, cheap, efficient, waged at standoff range. Now, of course, 
because of the range of technology associated with artificial intelligence. Really, 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 the next war will be in the realm of, of certainty rather than uncertainty. It's going to be waged in cyberspace rather than physical space or a combination of both, which is really what's going to happen, I think. And and so we we, we create this kind of pipe dream uh, of, of the next war uh, really being being fundamentally different from all those that have gone before it. And, and of course, a lot of the assumptions associated with future war these days involves that we need a much different force, really, a force that, that doesn't really adhere to the warrior ethos, which is an ethos based on, 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 on values and principles associated with, with courage, you know, toughness, uh, the willingness to sacrifice. And, and, uh, and I, I think that we don't hear that as enough anymore. We tend now to hear about, about America's warriors are, are cast as, as victims, right? As, as the, those who don't have authorship over their future. And, and, and I think all this is wrong, but it's also even more than wrong. It's dangerous because I think it could, we could have an impact on the military's culture that that uh, that creates vulnerabilities in, in the in the force, right? And 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 I think this is also associated with an assault, I think, on military culture from these you know, reified philosophies, you know, such such as critical race theory, you know, and, and post-colonial mm. theories. And and so I try to I try to you know, I, I try to you know, to to describe this the, these threats to the warrior ethos in the essay, describe why it's important, and then what we have to do to preserve it. You know, it occurs to me, and Brad, you may want to talk about this because you edited a very good monograph that, of course, General McMaster contributed to, um, that, that made the point that you have to, well, let me put it this way. You hear the phrase all the time, well, there's no military solution. Well, that's right and it's wrong. There may be no purely military solution, but there's often no diplomatic solution without a military component behind it and a threat of military force. Again, if it's one thing if you're talking to Canada about you know, an argument over lumber, but it's very different when you're talking to Xi Jinping or you're talking to Vladimir Putin or, or Khamenei. They do not want to come to a compromise settlement. If they feel no threat, then your diplomats are essentially impotent. And I think we've seen this in numerous negotiations, um, of course, not least with the negotiations with the Taliban, where they understood what we wanted was to leave Afghanistan. What they wanted was for us to leave Afghanistan. So how do they do that in a way that's most beneficial to them and least beneficial to us? Go ahead, Brad. You know, Cliff, I think you said it well, and, and General McMaster, I think, has written about this more eloquently than anyone. You know, uh, during the uh, 20-year war in Afghanistan, we heard many American uh, leaders, uh, even military leaders, say there's no military solution. You know, this seems to be a, a reflexive phrase that we hear, particularly from Americans. Yet, you know, the Taliban and their Al-Qaeda partners seem to have found a military solution. And uh, we even sometimes hear uh, our Secretary of Defense uh, at the Manama Dialogue recently talk about uh, you know, that the, the military is only part of the solution or, or that the focus for the Department of Defense is diplomacy. My goodness, I, I would argue that the focus of the Department of Defense should be fighting and winning wars and that diplomacy should be, be led by the State Department. And so there's this rhetoric that you you might want to just kind of brush aside that's just rhetoric, but I really think it speaks to something deeper that goes to the heart of what General McMaster is writing about in this article, that we need warriors and, and we need to have a healthy warrior ethos. And this is not just a job for West Point or a few military officers. This is a job for our nation. 
You know, you write uh, HR in this essay, The Lost War in Afghanistan, and I think you're right to call it a lost war, The Lost War in Afghanistan, evokes memories of the lost war in Vietnam. And you might want to elaborate on that because you also wrote the book on the, on the lost war in, in Vietnam. Yeah, I'll tell you, Cliff, I, I think that one of the dangers associated with uh, the lost war in Afghanistan, a, a war that was lost because of self-delusion that led to self-defeat. And, and essentially, it pains me to say this, Cliff, but 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 surrender to a terrorist organization is, is what, what occurred in Afghanistan. I think the danger is that we'll learn the wrong lessons. And I do believe we learned the, the wrong lessons from, from, from Vietnam. There's a great short essay by by Conrad Crane, my old colleague in the history department at West Point, you know, who, uh, who wrote an essay called Avoiding Vietnam. And he essentially said that after Vietnam, he said, okay, we're just never going to do that again. And, and, that, and that meant re- really fighting a counterinsurgency against a determined enemy that required not only military victories on the battlefield, but the consolidation of gains to get to a sustainable political outcome. That's what was required in Vietnam. And what that, what that really demanded was the integration of what we're doing militarily in Vietnam with what we're trying to achieve politically. That we were, but, but our efforts there were disconnected, right? The, the political and military efforts. Our, 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 effort, our, our military and political efforts in Afghanistan were also disconnected. I mean, Cliff and Brad, how the hell does it work? <laughs> you, say, you say to your enemy, hey, we're leaving. Here's the timeline for our withdrawal. We're no longer going to target you as an enemy. And we want to negotiate a favorable settlement on our way out. And so what we fail to do, Cliff and Brad, I think, is is recognize continuities in the nature of war and to actually use those continuities as a test to see if we have an adequate policy and strategy in place. Hey, war is an extension of politics. Well, of course, like everybody knows that. I mean, that's like the Geico commercial, right? You know, Clausewitz said that. But what that means is if you don't have a plan to get to a political outcome, and if you're not using military force to support your diplomatic efforts, then you're not recognizing that continuity. War is human. Hey, people fight for the same reasons Thucydides identified 2,500 years ago. Fear, honor, and interest. Now, what do you hear these days? Oh, our relationship with Afghanistan is entering a new diplomatic phase. Diplomatic phase with who? Haibatullah Akinzada, who's who encouraged his teenage son to commit mass murder by suicide? Right. I mean, we don't even consider the ideology and emotions that drive and constrain our adversary. And then the war is uncertain. I mean, hey, the future course of events in war depends on what the enemy decides to do as well as our plans. But instead, we assumed linear progress and announced years in advance exactly the number of troops we're going to have on the ground, what they're going to do, what they're not going to do. And then and then finally, war is a contest of wills. And I think across three administrations, our leaders failed failed to describe to the American people what was necessary to sustain our will, which is, hey, what is at stake in Afghanistan? And then what is a strategy that will deliver a favorable outcome at an acceptable cost? And I think these the, the neglect of these continuities was evident in, in Vietnam, and it was evident in, in Afghanistan as well. Let me, let me take an idea that, you, that, that you, you, in your essay, you talk about what defeat means. I think most people don't understand it. Tell me if I'm going too far here. But if you define defeat as the enemy no longer having the capability to accomplish his objectives, well, by that definition, one could say that the U.S. was defeating the Taliban. Not had defeated, but was defeating because their object, the Taliban's objective 
was to take over the entire country, to take not just the countryside, which where they were, but also to take the, the urban areas. And when Biden came into office, Taliban held no cities, no provincial capitals whatsoever. So in that sense, we were defeating the enemy. It's just that it's not a that it can't be put in the past tense. It requires determination and patience to keep the Taliban defeated. And rather than saying, okay, we're doing fine, we're not doing brilliantly here. There's things we'd like to be doing better. We'd, we'd like the Afghans to do more, although they were doing probably more than most people understand and doing better than people understand. But this is a reasonable outcome. The Taliban's not able to accomplish their objectives. But that was never explored or explained to people is that's why we have a small force there as well as a small European force. And that's what it's going to take. It's it's substantially less than, for example, we've had in South Korea for the past 70 years. We've got 28,000 troops, so fewer troops than we have in Germany or in other parts of, of the world. That's maybe what it takes, given the kinds of enemies we have now, which are not tank divisions coming across the plains of, of Europe. Absolutely. I mean, this is, again, you know, what Clausewitz said, that you know, winning in war requires convincing your enemy that your enemy's been defeated. And, and in this case, it meant convincing the Taliban and their jihadist terrorist sponsors and their Pakistani inner services intelligence sponsors that they couldn't accomplish their objectives through the use of force. And, and, uh, and of course, we did the opposite, right? We, we bolstered their confidence by giving them these timelines and then for a brief period, when, when President Trump put in, into place the, the South Asia strategy in 2017, I think the Taliban said, and, and the Pakistanis, I know both of them said, okay, hey, now we've got to change our approach you know, because the, the Americans are said they're not going to leave on a timeline. They are targeting us actively. We made the Taliban again a designated enemy, which is crazy that they weren't because they were killing our soldiers and committing mass murder of Afghans on a daily basis. But then Later, you know, the the endless war crowd, you know, their their voices won out uh, over Trump at least, and he sent Zal Khalilzad uh, to surrender to the Taliban, which is exactly what he did. There's there's no other explanation for what he did, and in fact, not only did did we did we did we surrender and withdraw, but we actually took actions that strengthened the Taliban and bolstered their will on our way out. You know, first, you know, not, you know, not uh, insisting that the Afghan government be a party to the negotiations. What effect did that have that emboldened the Taliban and weakened the Afghan government? After we negotiated with the Taliban, they talked to the Afghans. They said, hey, what are we talking to you for? We just defeated the world's the world's only superpower. Why would we talk to you? And then we, we forced them to 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 release 5000, some of the most heinous people on Earth. Uh, we, you know, we 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 engaged in a ceasefire with them while they were continuing their mass murder attacks against the Afghan people, bombing girls' schools. You know, I mean, assaulting, assaulting a maternity hospital and gunning down infants and expected mothers, Cliff. And then we we didn't do a damn thing about it. We just stood by. They they're not attacking us. So I mean, I, I think we you know we did everything we could to encourage them, but also we delivered a series of psychological blows to the to the Afghans. From which they couldn't recover. And again, this goes back to a continuity of the nature of war, right? I mean, war is a contest of wills. And we did everything, it seemed, diplomatically and militarily, to bolster the enemy and to and, and to and to undercut the, the the will of our of our of our allies who had actually Afghans, you know, but nearly 70,000 of them gave their lives fighting on a modern day frontier between barbarism and civilization. 
and we abandon them at the end. And it's, and it's shameful. It really is shameful. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned a concept that I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about. Brad, you might want to start on this, but I'd like to hear both of you. And that's this concept of the endless war or forever war, uh, which is being used both on the right and the left. And it strikes me, this is what, and I want, I want your thoughts on this, that it's a really bogus conf, a concept because the, the notion that war should last about five years and end in a ticker tape parade, this, you can only believe that if you know nothing about history, where wars have lasted often for centuries. Now, they may be more intense at various points and less intense, but that's what happens. And in fact, we don't get to decide how long wars last, uh, our enemies will. The, the jihad against the West has been going on for really for 1,400 years. And China has what's called a 100-year marathon, which will entail at various times um, conflict. And at various times, it, it'll operate in other ways. It'll prepare for conflict, as I think the Chinese are now doing by establishing ports that can serve military purposes almost everywhere in Africa, on the Atlantic, throughout South America, other places. Um, this, is a, this is a serious misconception that a lot of people have because it's being propagated, again, by people and, and, and it, not least think tanks, Brad, on, on both the left and the right. Cliff, I think you're right. You and I uh, wrote uh, about this in the uh, December 2020 chapter in Defending Forward about how you know, and General uh, uh, McMaster knows this better than anyone based on his study of history that, you know, warfare is the norm, sadly. Sadly, warfare is the norm and peace is the anomaly. And it's easy to destroy and hard to build. And so when you have something like we have in the United States, where we're arguably enjoying an unprecedented combination of peace, security, and prosperity, we take that for granted at our foolishly at our own peril. We have something here worth defending, and we should say so. And to me, this goes back to the warrior ethos. If we're going to ask our sons and daughters, husbands and wives to deploy into danger and stand between us and those who want to kill us, we have to speak the truth. And the truth is that what they're doing is noble and what we have is worth defending. And um, those who um, suggest that we can just end wars uh, like we did in Iraq in 2011 by withdrawing or as we did in 2021, a decade later, later in Afghanistan, we can just end them by withdrawing. Uh, they don't understand history the way General McMaster does, and they don't understand our adversaries. Our, our colleague at FDD, Aaron McLean, published a piece a day or two ago in the Wall Street Journal where he talked about the, our failure to understand our adversaries. We have this kind of arrogant, and, and as General McMaster wrote about in Battlegrounds, a narcissistic strategic narcissism where we think everything is in response to us. You know, like, well, Putin's done, doing something bad in and around Ukraine, so therefore it must we must you know, it's it's the expansion of NATO. It's got to be the expansion of NATO. Or, you know, if we just withdraw from Afghanistan, they won't hurt us. Or, you know, the Chinese, if we just establish a few more Confucian centers, maybe in our universities and allow them to propagandize our young, maybe they'll like us more. You know, actually, you know, there are actually just evil people in the world. There are authoritarian thugs who only respect power. They're going to do what they're going to do. The question is how you respond. And so I, I think beginning with the truth is a good place to start. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'll tell you, Brad, I, I really I agree. And our colleagues at FTD, Tom Jocelyn and Bill Rogio, they've done a great job with this as well, right? They, they point out, I think their phrase was that, you know, it's not an endless war. It's our enemies waging an endless jihad against us. And and those who who make, who make sort of uh, you know, propagate and, 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 uh, and promote 
uh, the, the end the endless war narrative, they say, well, we need a more modest foreign policy. But their position is actually quite arrogant because, as you pointed out, they're assuming that our enemies, our adversaries uh, have really no aspirations except those that are in reaction to what we do. Right. Well, actually, they Vladimir Putin does have an agenda of his own. Right. To restore Russia to national greatness, to get over what he perceives as as the humiliation or the honor lost during the breakup of the Soviet Union and the associated drive to establish Novo Russia. So we, we have to recognize that our, our enemies, our, our adversaries are driven by emotions and aspirations and ideologies that go beyond those that are in reaction to us. And, and uh, you know, I'm reminded of, there's, there's a great book actually by Chris Coker, Christopher Coker called, uh, called Can War Be Eliminated? Okay, to give you the Cliff Notes version, uh, no pun intended, Cliff, is the is the is the, uh, is the 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 answer is no okay in in the in the book but it's a, it's a really great uh, long essay book uh, on on the idea that hey sometimes wars choose you rather than the other way around and and in the book he quotes G K Chesterton who I I highly recommend I mean his collection of essays in defense of sanity I think is much needed are much needed these days but but you know Chesterton said war may not be the best way of settling differences but it's the only way to ensure they're not settled for you. Or oftentimes it is, right? So, you know, I, I think that it is it's really an arrogant phrase, this end the endless war, assuming that wars end when one side disengages. And what's so sad about this is that, you know, as, as historian, especially, I'm like, what the heck was I doing studying history? Because nobody pays attention to it anymore. I mean, we should, you know, the you know, we we should have learned this from the complete withdrawal from Iraq, right? In December 2011. Um, I think it was 2011. Yeah, it's December 2011. And you know, and Lloyd Austin was there, right? And and uh, and 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 knows better because you know the, the, we declared the endless war over, and of course, three years later, ISIS is in control of territory the size of Britain and became the most destructive terrorist organization in history, and, and compelled us to go back, right? So so wars don't end when one side disengages. Yeah, uh, a couple other points in your essay that I wanted to bring out, uh, and you touched on them, but I wanted to talk a little more. One is. Um, that foreign propaganda is intended to demoralize troops, political leaders, others. But we now have some pretty powerful domestic propaganda that appears to be aimed at achieving the same goal. And I'm talking about the narratives, really, of the woke ideology. And you mentioned, I think, briefly, the 1619 Project. What they convey is the message that America is simply not a country worth fighting for. And never has been. And if you're a young man, do you think, or a young woman, do you think of going into the military to defend a country if you uh, buy the narrative, which I think is an entirely false narrative? We can talk about that. Um, that is that that you see in in the 1619 project that the New York Times, where I used to work, uh, put out, which won a Pulitzer Prize and is now being pushed into our public schools around the country uh, when they're open, which is not very much of the time. It's being it's being pushed over Zoom as well. I'm sure, you know. But but I, I think this is, you're exactly right. I mean, hey, what, what if what if young Americans decide their country's not worth defending because they've been told that you know that that every problem that we face is structural and institutional, and and that our country was founded to preserve slavery rather than founded uh, really than founded to, to really to gain independence primarily, but founded also on principles that ultimately made that horrible institution unsustainable. That's that's the true narrative, and not that we should 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 uh, ask students to conform to a contrived happy view of our history, but this curriculum of self-loathing, 
uh, that that was prevalent in the university that is that has its ties back to to deconstructionist philosophies of Foucault and Derrida, and then and then and then manifested itself in post-colonial theory, in which really all of the ills of the world prior to 1945 were due to colonialism, and all the ills of the world after 45 were due to capitalist imperialism. This is this is the kind of thinking that is foundational, that was foundational to, to Marxism uh, and, 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 uh, and, and to fascism, right? These deterministic theories in which you teach people they have no agency except if they come together to tear it all down, right? And, and so what, what I worry about is, is not only you know, the, the, this orthodoxy of self-loathing and the diminished will to maybe defend you know, our freedoms that we all enjoy, but but also, that what does this leave you with? If you're taught that you have no agency, you're left with a combination of anger and resignation. And we're telling the young people, hey, you can't build a better future. You can't work together. And then, of course, what, what these elements of critical race theory also teach young people is that they are defined by their identity category rather than the content of their character. As Martin Luther King said, we ought to be, he, he dreamt that, that his children would be would be defined. Um, and, and it also then teaches young people, you can't empathize with others. You can't put yourself in other people's shoes and, 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 and you should categorize yourself on a strata of of relative victimhood, um, unless you're, you're, unless you're cast in the role of an oppressor. Right. And and what happens is, you know, this, this leaves people angry and resigned. And I think it creates an equal and opposite reaction uh, in, in in terms of other forms of bigotry and racism, because this is in itself racist, right? And and you see this interaction on extremes between you know white supremacy and, and uh, various forms of bigotry and racism with this nonsense of critical race theory, and and it creates centripetal forces that are pulling us apart, right? And and if, if it infects our military, and this is what I wrote about in this essay, is the way it has infected academia. I mean, I think it it would be an utter disaster. You know, and I mean, just look at what's, what occurs on college campuses. I mean, are, the, are these places where these days uh, you know, people can come together for meaningful, respectful, tolerant discussions about the challenges we face? It's not. People want to cancel each other right away. They, they don't, they're intolerant of, of views. And I think there's a backlash starting against all this. I welcome it. And I think what we ought to tell our young people is, hey, apparently our generation screwed this up, Cliff and Brad. You know, now it's your, you've got to sort it out. And if anybody, if anybody tells you that you have to adhere to a certain orthodoxy, you ought to be deeply skeptical of that and read alternative perspectives. And I think it's our younger generation that can save us from ourselves. And I want to point out that these ideologies are reactionary, regressive, and pre-modern. When I say pre-modern, an important characteristic of modernity was the idea that your life is not determined by immutable characteristics of birth. You're in the aristocracy, you're in the peasantry, you'll be there forever, you have no chance because that's how you're born. There is such a thing as merit, you can earn, you can build, you can you can have talents and you can utilize them and become something that, that your parents weren't. And now we're saying, no, you can't. If your skin is a certain color, that must determine your status in society. That is just, that is, that is again. It's it, it's an attack even on on modernity. Uh, go ahead, Brad. I see you wanted to add something. Yeah, no. I just uh, uh, General McMaster mentioned uh, G.K. Chesterton earlier. He also uh, included a quote in his Warrior Ethos article from Chesterton <clears throat> that I really appreciated. 
And the quote is, the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. And, and uh, you know, General McMaster knows from firsthand experience that, you know, and he mentions the articles, you know, soldiers fight for their, their fellow soldiers, but they also fight because they love something. Uh, and if we're teaching our young people uh, that uh, our country is, is not worthy of love and defense, then why, as he said, would we ever defend ourselves? And, you know, um, the response to uh, these arguments is, you know, we'll look at this, you know, look at slavery, which is a, a deplorable evil in our country's history. Look at this, look at that. And and and, and again, I think uh, John McMaster is so right to identify our, our national creed. Our national creed is not based on blood and soil. It's it's based on, uh, you know, the, the ideas embodied in our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence, which I would dare say is the most noble national creed in the history of humankind. And to the degree that we've been able to accomplish something successful, it's because we have identified a truism that's worth defending. And we've spent our national history trying to live up to that creed with all of its imperfections. And so if that's not something worth defending, I don't know what is. And that's why we swear an oath not to a race or or to a party or to a person, but to a constitution. And that constitution is worth defending. And we fail to defend it again, I think, at our own peril. I, I, this is self-indulgent, but I, I, but it's relevant, and I think, and I can't help myself. And I, look, I shared this with Brad earlier, HR, but I want to share. So my wife was recently cleaning the house, and she came across a letter written on Christmas, nineteen forty-four, by my father, who was then twenty-two years old, and was serving in the South Pacific. Okay, he was sergeant major in the third air task force wing squadron, U.S. Army Air Forces in the South Pacific. He served in New Guinea, Borneo and the Philippines. On Christmas 1944, he writes this letter home and he talks casually about the Japanese sending out, quote, a load of suicide squadrons to try to knock out his convoy as it was landing. He says, our P-38s, which I had to look up, it's a single, you guys know, it's a single-seated fighter aircraft, got most of them before they reached us. But of course, some got through. Uh, he clearly in this letter hated the Japanese um, because they were <laughs> America's enemies. He clearly also, I thought it's interesting, admired the Filipinos and especially the guerrilla fighters who he called really tough boys. <laughs> and his letter ends with, well, kids, got to quit now, the lamp is low. He was 22 years old and he, and he had never been out of, I don't think he had ever been out of New York city before they sent him to the South Pacific. And they only were getting letters like once a month at that point and sending out occasionally. But it really, you know, when, when I, when I read that and then read your piece on the warrior ethos, even though I thought, you know, here's this kid from Brooklyn, uh, who, you know, who, yeah, he, did, he didn't really, he didn't really need any trigger warnings. No, you know, he wasn't going to, he wasn't, he wasn't retreating to a safe space. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, and, and, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think that what, what's happened is, is that we have, and I, I read about this in the essay, we have, we have valorized victimhood. Right. So, and, and of course this is connected to this robbing of agency. Right, that taking, telling people you you can't really influence the future. You're 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 a hapless recipient of structural and institutional fill in the blank, you know, problem. And and uh, and so I I really I really am concerned about about how this collective sort of uh, 
our, our collective will to improve our society. I mean, there are a lot of improvements to make. I mean, you know, we have to acknowledge that, you know, that 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 racism and prejudice continue in 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 our country, right? We the civil rights movement helped us, you know, get get rid of of um, you know of de jure segregation and inequality of opportunity, but de facto segregation and inequality of opportunity continues, right? I mean, we should all be uh, we should all be disappointed that that the number of obstacles that you have to overcome to take advantage of the great promise of this country is still determined in large measure by what zip code you're born into, right? And and what education system you can access as a result of that. Okay, so let's get to work on all this, right? And and I, I so I, I think that what your you know what what your father knew at age 22 is that he was in a fight. He was not a hapless recipient of enemy action, right? That that he he and his fe, you know fellow soldiers you know had agency, and we're and, and we're going to we're going to win, you know. And and I think that's the attitude that we want to have on the battlefield, essentially. But it's also the attitude we we need to have about about you know continuing to improve our country and and to build a better future. I'm going to shift a little bit to something that I, I, I ask you a question where I really don't know the answer on this, uh, and, and and that has to do with what Russia is up to right now. Because we're we're recording this in early January, we'll probably uh, release it pretty pretty quickly. And uh, from what I understand, if Putin decides to go into Ukraine, he'll do it in late January when the ground is really frozen, and his tanks can go anywhere; they don't need to stay on the roads any longer. And I think. And I could be wrong that there are real signs that he may be very seriously, I don't know that he's made up his mind, but maybe very seriously considering this is this is the time when I do what I want to do. Now there's a school of thought, and it's it's kind of prevalent that says, oh, you know, he 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 fears NATO and we've made him feel insecure. And if we just make him feel more secure, he won't do this. I don't quite buy that. I've been following Putin for a long time. I mean, he and I were in college together, literally. Uh, I was an exchange student at the University of, uh, of Leningrad. He was at the same time. We didn't actually go out and drink brewskis together, but I know we were there at the same time. I And he wrote a very interesting, in July, a 5,000-word essay published under his name, and I think it was certainly his thoughts, where he makes it absolutely clear that he believes Ukraine is not a separate country, never should have been called a separate country he, I think he thinks of himself as a czar. The czars were the czars of all the Russias. All the Russias meant Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, particularly. Those are the three Russias. And he thinks it's just, it, 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 it's wrong. Now, but that, that, but my question is this, did, have we made a mistake in making NATO too large and expanding NATO to all these small countries, many of which have very limited military capabilities, which really are not going to come to the aid of, in a, in, a, in a serious way, of other NATO members. It's going to be left to us. We've also allowed, and we complained about this, even Germany and others, not to contribute to the collective security the way they have promised to and should. Would we have been better off to keep NATO a small group of nations that are military capable and will defend themselves when we go and say we're going to defend all these different countries? Does it make an opportunity for somebody like, like like Putin to say what he's saying now, which is, I want you to guarantee Ukraine will never be part of NATO. I want you to guarantee that no NATO arms will be sent to Ukraine. In other words, I want you to guarantee that I have a sphere of influence that includes Ukraine. But then, by the way, what else is this going to include? The Baltic countries, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, maybe down to Moldova. Uh, 
how far will he go? My guess is he'll go as far as he thinks he can go because appeasement doesn't generally work with people like Putin. I leave it there for you for your thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you know, Cliff. What, what, you know, those who argue that that we offended Putin by you know, allowing NATO expansion are saying that we should have given Russia veto power over free nations who voted to join the EU or to or to join NATO. I mean, why why would why would, would that make any sense? And of course, Putin is actually making a great case for the expansion of NATO right now, because this kind of intimidation, the invasion of Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea is what you would have seen in the Baltic states had they not been members of NATO, or maybe in, in certain territories within within Poland or the quarters of Kaliningrad, or mm-hmm. you know, or uh, you know. So I I think he's <laughs> what he's done not only you know from here in Ukraine, but going back to two thousand and seven. Uh, with the, with the the uh, the cyber attacks on on Estonia and on the Baltic states, and then the invasion of Georgia in 2008, the sustained campaign of political subversion. Remember the attempts to rig you know elections in Ukraine multiple times to poison you know a candidate for for president in, in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, look at the attempted coup and, and the plot to assassinate the the, the president of Montenegro uh, when when he won the election. I mean, I, I think there are so many. Examples, right, of, of 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 Russian aggression, and again, this you know this argument that hey, we caused this, I think, is is fundamentally wrong, and and um and, and you know I, I think we're not doing enough to deter uh, Russia. You've seen really the you know, the the um, demands that he's made are basically to get NATO to disavow NATO. <laughs> That's what he's, and so so I, I think. Uh, I, I think what this does is it actually makes the argument that NATO is more relevant than ever to deter conflict. We have, I think, through uh, collective security, uh, NATO uh, prevented great power conflict, you know, for almost 80 years. Right. And and um, and, you know, I think that if we don't continue that commitment to NATO, uh, we already see what's going to happen. Right. And. And I think what we're missing these days, you know, it's great to threaten economic sanctions, but why isn't there a combined joint task force and NATO task force in Romania right now, a NATO ally? Because part of what Putin's doing to Ukraine is it is meant as an object lesson uh, to, to, to Romania, uh, to Bulgaria, NATO members to say, you know, who's your daddy, basically. And, 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 uh, and he wants to turn the Black Sea into a Russian lake, Right. So, you know, I think from a deterrent perspective, we're not doing enough militarily. Well, drill down on that just a little bit, two parts. Would you actually consider sending troops in to defend Ukraine? Or would you simply say he should know whether or not we're going to do that? That's the, you know, that's that's what deterrence means. He should not, he should worry that we might. And of course, Biden has taken that off the table. And I don't see the strategic benefit of having done that. Well, you know, of course, this goes back to your original point that you made at the outset, right? You know, hey, there's no military solution. That mantra you hear all the time. Hey, well, Putin is organizing a military solution right now, (laughs) right now for Ukraine. And so if we don't do anything militarily to project power in the region broadly, then I think what we're doing is encouraging you know, more aggression on his part. Remember, as this crisis began, we had some destroyers patrolling in the Black Sea. We pulled them back quite conspicuously. What did he do right after that? He fired, you know, really in, in the path of a of a British destroyer that was that was transiting adjacent to Crimea. You know, Putin Putin will will, will take anything he can get. 
uh, until he meets strong resistance, not only diplomatically and economically, but also militarily. I mean, if you think about, remember in Syria in 2000 and 2018, early in 2018, when Russian, uh, you know, R- Russian mercenaries uh, and, and proxy forces attacked our forces in Syria. Well, you know what happened is they, they got crushed, mm-hmm. right? They got crushed because I don't think they really even understood the way that we could project power with joint capabilities. Uh, and we destroyed that entire attacking force, almost the entire attacking force. Uh, and, and I think that's that's the reason we haven't seen more Russian aggression against us in, in, in Syria. So I, I really think that we, we don't want to precipitate conflict, certainly. I would not deploy forces into Ukraine. I don't think that's necessary. But I think what I would be doing is airlifting a whole bunch of defensive capabilities mm-hmm. into Ukraine right now. I mean, think about you know, this, this, think about what we would want to do to help Israel prior to the 73 war, right? That's what we should be doing. Something, I think, on a, on a scale that's analogous to that, not the same scale. But we should be, we should be I think, supporting Ukraine's development of their defense capabilities in the, some of the critical areas that they still need. And that's tiered and layered air defense capabilities, but also, you know, the, you know, uh, I think more javelins, right? Uh, you know, anti-tank uh, missile capabilities, not not to precipitate conflict, but to but to demonstrate to Putin that the Ukrainians are are prepared to inflict costs on him that go way beyond the cost that he's factoring in right now, the anticipated costs that he's factoring in right now. You know, this gets to something, Brad. I've heard you talk about a lot which is that we should our our troops should never be in a fair fight and the, and, and the essence of american strategy and i think it's hard for americans to do strategy because you have a different president every 4 years and there has been certainly in recent years a tendency to say everything my predecessor did was stupid and wrong and i'm going to change it uh so you can't have a, a long term strategy but the most basic thing is that you your forces are clearly superior to your enemies or any combination of your enemies. That is not the goal of the current administration, I I fear. And I don't think most people in America have been convinced that, yes, we have to have forces that are so superior that they deter and defeat if they have to, but are less likely to have to because they are seen as overwhelming. If they think they can beat us, then they're more likely to try. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Cliff. You know, I mean, we're looking at roughly 100,000 Russian troops on Ukraine's north, on its east, and in the south. And when I say south, I'm talking about Crimea, which, of course, is part of Ukraine and Putin illegally invaded and annexed it. And, you know, we're talking about main battle tanks, self-propelled howitzers, infantry fighting vehicles, multiple launch rocket systems, cert-range ballistic missiles, surface air missiles. So and 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 Putin's doing this in a way it's it's very it's very shrewd right where it's, it's not clear whether it's preparation for an invasion or a training exercise and that's perfect for him right because what's he doing he's using hard power as a means at a minimum to elicit concessions at the at the negotiating table or to prepare for an invasion I mean that's what he's doing and and, and Joe McMaster has, has cited the great quote from. Former Secretary of State, late George Schultz, the shadow of power. He's casting the shadow of power over the negotiating table to at a minimum get concessions or to prepare for an invasion. And what is the concession he wants? He wants, as General McMaster said, he wants a veto over the decisions of Kiev, of Ukraine. He wants to be able to call the shots in Ukraine. And for Americans and for listeners, that's really the question. Do you believe in 21st century Europe whether we should have might make right authoritarianism, that he who is strongest calls the shots and tells other countries what to do, 
or do you believe in the rule of law, territorial integrity, and national sovereignty? And so this gets to the question, I think, of NATO expansion, right? And General McMaster said this. If we're going to say no, it's a, it's a mistake for NATO to expand because we might offend Russian sensibilities. You're basically saying, okay, uh, we're going to give Putin a veto over his neighbors, and we're and we're going to buy into uh, a sphere of influence uh, uh, doctrine that you know John Kerry says is something that should be relegated to the 18th or 19th century. You know, evidently Putin didn't get the memo that in the 21st century it's not polite to use military power to seize territory or accomplish. Well, he didn't get that memo. And most of our adversaries haven't got that memo. And we need to wake up to that fact. And this gets back to the role of hard power and the warrior ethos in securing our country. And you read also, uh, HR, that as uh, the U.S. was conducting the humiliating retreat from Kabul, the Pentagon was doing what? It was developing a climate strategy in response to the president's guidance to prioritize climate change considerations. I mean, is that really the job of the military? Shouldn't the Pentagon be thinking about how to fight wars of the present and of the future, um, as opposed to how our soldiers can fight climate change? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, how about how about State Department, Department of Energy? I mean, I, I mean, of course, the military has a role. The military develops novel uh, means of generating power uh, that, that can be, you know, can help reduce carbon emissions and so forth. The military will have a role like it did in, 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 uh, in developing, uh, you know, MNRA vaccines, right. Uh, and with, with uh, investment in science and technology, but that is not the principal mission of, of the department of defense. And, and what I'm concerned about is it's just going to be another distraction. And again, it can also not only affect our ability to to plan and prepare and develop future forces to to deter war and if, if deterrence fails to fight and win, but it also can have a, a, a desultory effect on the culture itself, right? If if the military forgets what it's for, right, then 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 how do you maintain the ethos that is essential to combat to combat effectiveness? And, and last month, the Pentagon estimated that that the Beijing is increasing its nuclear arsenals and at the end of the decade could quadruple to at least a thousand warheads. And Beijing is ahead of us in hypersonic missiles, which I'd like to know your view, but sounds like it could be something of a game changer. Um, these are the things that, that we absolutely, would seem to me, need to be concentrating on. And yet uh, that doesn't seem to have penetrated with our current Leadership and maybe not to well. I don't. I'll, I'll leave it to you whether the, the previous administration understood all this. I know <laughs> HR. You were trying to make these points clearly to the president, and I'm sure it was well something of a struggle. Well, you know, I, I think that there's this idea that that you can you can again make diplomatic headway without doing so from a position of strength, and you know we we saw this in the nuclear uh, in in the nuclear arena play out with the reluctance. To get out of the Inter intermediate nuclear forces treaty, which I recommended, you know, as soon as I became national security advisor, that we ought to do because I knew as 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 uh, in my in my job as as, as to helping design the future army that uh, that Russia was violating the treaty, and by us adhering to a treaty that nobody else was adhering to. Okay, that first of all, that's not a treaty, right? If only one side adheres to it, but we were denying ourselves the development of very important capabilities, especially land-based long-range precision fires. Uh, and and uh, and and we were, and we were not pursuing hypersonics the way that we needed to. I think we rectified that by pulling out of the INF treaty. Uh, but now, I mean, does that mean we can't get back? We get can't get back to the table to negotiate the reduction of 
uh, of some of the most destructive weapons on earth. As we see China accelerating its program, we see Russia engaged in a whole range of of of, of disruptive nuclear capabilities and a doctrine. Their doctrine is called escalation domination. Mm. And basically what Putin is saying is, hey, I'm, I'm willing to, to use nuclear weapons in Europe and then say to the United States, hey, you can either sue for peace on my terms or, or I can threaten you with Armageddon. Okay, how, how's that not destabilizing? So I, I think, but the only way we're going to get back to it is kind of the way that we did, I, I would say, in the 1980s, right? Which, which required the deployment, of, remember, of Pershing II missiles to Europe to answer the threat from the SS-20s from the, from the Soviet Union. And it was only after we had that intermediate range capability that the, that the, that the Soviets came to the table. And there was, you know, a great, probably the most significant arms control agreement was the elimination of a whole class of nuclear weapons. Well, what happened? Situation changed. Russia violated that, 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 that agreement uh, under Putin. And we have another whole party uh, to, to this to this competition uh, with China. So, you know, but but there are those in the administration, I think, and, and you know, and, and you know, who argue today that that we need to get to an agreement as an end of itself. Mm. Actually, we need to get to an agreement that actually improves our security. And we can only do that really through through strength and and not only nuclear strength, but also demonstrating the conventional type capabilities that convince the Chinese Communist Party that aggression on Taiwan, for example, can't 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 work at an acceptable cost, or uh, or to convince Russia that they can't accomplish their objectives in Europe uh, it, it, uh, through the use of force. Yeah, and I think we've been seeing that uh, particularly over the past year, not just the past year, but with in the negotiations that have been taking place with the Islamic Republic of Iran, where this administration seems to want an agreement. If it's a good agreement, wonderful. If it's a bad agreement, that's okay too, as long as they get to an agreement. Having negotiations with an adversary that won't even deign to negotiate with us at the same table in the same room. What an insult and a humiliation that we accepted that. Why not say, if you won't sit down with us, then fine, we have nothing to talk about and we'll play out the hands. But no, they said, okay, well, you won't talk to us. Well, we'll talk through other interlocutors. That just strikes me as uh, as a, a huge well, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say, Cliff, I think it's fair to say that we are projecting weakness. Yes. Across the board, I mean, well, that's the, right. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the surrender withdrawal from Afghanistan, yeah, right. The you know the the saying, hey, we'll only use military force, you know, uh, it, 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 after you invade Ukraine to, to Russia. I mean, how does that make sense? You know, and and I, I really just think that that there have been a series of decisions that are emboldening our adversaries, which makes it super dangerous. I mean, as we enter this new year, Cliff and Brad, I don't know what you guys think. I, I think there's a very high potential for a cascading series of crises. I mean, you already have the Iranians attacking our forces at Al-Tanf, right? right? Uh, using drones, threatening to do more of it. You just saw that, the, that the, the Iraqis shot down a couple of drones that on the anniversary of Soleimani's assassination, um, you know, it's killing, uh, I, think, I, think, I think justifiably, certainly, because he was an active, uh, you know, he was an active combatant against us and was organizing attacks against us at the time. But the, I think these drones were oriented on on a, on a on a U.S. position at the Baghdad airport that were just shot down. Um, you, you see Putin marshalling, you know, in in uh, against uh, against Ukraine. Uh, we've had you know, a series of, of cyber attacks. You have China becoming more and more aggressive in the South China Sea and vis-a-vis Taiwan with the overflights and so forth. I mean, I I really think that that these adversaries will at least be opportunistic 
And if there is a crisis in one area, would be encouraged to precipitate a crisis in another. Well, let me mention that. Go ahead. No, go, Brad. Go, Brad. I'll- yeah, sorry. Just very quickly, you know, and, and uh, Jim McMaster and Ucliff understand this well, but some of the listeners may be less familiar with it. I mean, we use the word deterrence a lot. You know, deterrence has two major components. It's when we talk about is someone deterred, it's the perception of the adversary that matters. Their perception of what? It's their perception of our ability and will, our military capability and our will to use it. And so uh, you can have the most potent and capable military in the world with the ideal warrior ethos. But if our political leaders aren't willing to use that capability, then an adversary is not deterred. And so if you buy that argument, then a disaster in Afghanistan, to the degree that it affects perceptions of the the will of our leaders to use military force, can have global consequences. So big surprise if we see a more aggressive Moscow or more aggressive Beijing based on their perception that we have less political will to use force to defend our interests. And so that's why when you hear, in my opinion, when you hear those arguments, oh, you know, hey, that Afghanistan thing didn't go so well, but you know, now we need to get busy with China. I think that view is foolish for all kinds of reasons, but it ignores the, the damage that we've done to our global deterrence because of the decline perception or willingness to, de- uh, to actually use force to defend ourselves. And one other quick point I've written on this a lot is that I do, I, I share General McMaster's concern. I also worry that we could confront multiple major crises at the same time. You know, we've seen growing uh, military training and exercise between China and Russia. They are not allies in the way that we think of allies. I don't want to overplay that. You know, they got along, you know, there's, there's lots of issues there. But we have seen uh, strategic level coordination between China and Russia. We've seen naval exercises. We've seen land-based exercises. We've seen exchanging of best practices. So it's not inconceivable that we could have a conflict in Ukraine, right? And simultaneously, Xi decides now is the moment to roll the dice in the Taiwan Strait. And that very quickly creates capacity problems for the United States and our allies. You, you, you anticipate cyber attacks, I would add, cyber attacks and threats to space assets. And, right, absolutely. Uh, that, well, you, and Brad, you anticipated what was going to be my exit question, which is ex- exactly that. By the way, also not well known, you guys will know it. We now have drones supplied by Iran in Venezuela pointing at Miami, which could reach Miami. And this is getting, as far as I can see, very little, if any, attention from the administration. And I think, Brad, I agree with what you said, but I think it does go further. I think there is a de facto axis or alliance among the major authoritarians of the world. Um, Venezuela um, is supported by Russia and China and the Islamic Republic of Iran currently. And there are increasing relations between, as really a Sino- a Sino-Russian alliance that has been, if not blossoming, certainly developing. And China is helping the Islamic Republic of Iran. So it's not inconceivable that they sit down and say, you know what, we can help each other. How about the tre- the trends cliff might be in, a, in in the wrong direction there. To look at Nicaragua, yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 uh, look at the recent election in Peru and in Chile. Which I think are, are you know they're left leaning governments that I mean the, hey I, I we're like this is going this is back to the eighties man I mean we're like I mean, it seems like we're going back to the eighties you anti- by the way you anticipated the the a column I have coming out this week um, early uh, today is January fourth it comes out tonight which says that the that that the extent to which our adversaries are establishing themselves as 
hegemones in South America is not well understood. We have we have the Chinese t- uh, opening ports that can be used for military purposes. We have Tehran throughout the, uh, the region extending itself. We have uh, Hezbollah working at with narco uh, cartels hand in hand and helping them. And we and ever since John Kerry back in 2013 announced to the world that the Monroe Doctrine no longer applies. That has been seen as an open door, an invitation to our enemies to say, fine, we're coming into South America. And they are. And we have leftist regimes, Nicaragua, you're right, Peru, for sure, absolutely for sure. It's Marxist, Leninist, Venezuela. Even the one out of five people have fled Venezuela because of poverty. Venezuela is still hugely powerful, along with Cuba. It's where where you also, where Obama decided, I'm going to reopen relations, diplomatic relations with Cuba. I'm going to have my picture taken under a portrait of Che Guevara, totalitarian, violent extremist, and has gotten nothing in exchange for that. On the contrary, over 150 dissidents and protesters were thrown in jail last month. And, uh, and, and Cuba also is part of this authoritarian alliance. And I just don't know that if the Pentagon, and this is my last thought, is thinking about the fact, what if Putin goes into Ukraine, she goes into Taiwan, Khomeini goes into Iraq, and Venezuela maybe shoots a few rockets at us at the same time, or a few drones at us just to show that it can. And then, I don't know, maybe North Korea decides to push on the door, and they all do it at once. Do we think that we in this, this White House and this administration and this Pentagon can say, yeah, we thought about that and we have a plan? I leave that. I leave, yeah, I mean, Brad, I'll ask you to talk about this because Brad has, has so much experience on this in terms of uh, of defense budget and, and budget preparation from the perspective of the Hill. One of the things that I was really concerned about years ago was that these defense planning scenarios in the Defense Department, which are classified, and we can't really talk about specifically about them, but they they tend to to look at discrete problem sets and not recognize how interconnected these challenges can become. And then I think this, of course, drives you know people to the answers they want, right? Which is typically smaller military forces, you know, a a smaller defense budget, right? So I I think that that's the path wrong. I think when you get this defense strategy that comes out here, it's going to be more of the do more with less nonsense, you know, that that I think we saw uh, during the Obama administration, which created a bow wave of deferred modernization that we still have not yet addressed. So I, I think there are real defense vulnerabilities at, at a very dangerous time. I, uh, just three quick things. Real, General McMaster's being kind. I would defer to him on all these issues, but three quick points uh, uh, related to that. One is, you know, that we hear a lot from this current administration, which, you know, is making a good effort here about integrated deterrence. I mean, I'm all for integrated deterrence, right? Because on, on the surface, what does that mean? As General McMaster said many times, it's integrating all tools of national power, to achieve better results for the United States and our allies. Who, who couldn't be for that? But when you look at some of the statements coming out and some of the, and some of the talk around the national defense strategy that this administration is going to release in the coming months, it, it appears to me, I worry, as a cover for spending less on defense. And that's just not, you know, I'm not saying that just because I want to spend more on the defense uh, for the sake of it. Is you know, if you look at the five major threats we confront, as delineated you know, by the 2018 National Defense Strategy Commission, for example, um, we we have China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and and, uh, and uh, terrorism, and they're all worse than they were in 2018. So I don't know how this administration 
can suggest that we should have a static or declining defense budget when all five of those threats are worse than they were. And it gets to these issues of capacity and war plans that, you know, we can't get into. Um, and then very quickly, last of these, I know Jim McMaster has to run here in a minute, is um, the competition with China, to your point, Cliff. It's a global competition. And it's a multifaceted competition. Just look at what China is doing in, 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 in Central and South. Cliff, you and I had a podcast with the previous commander of Southern, Southern Command a while back. China is investing heavily in energy and, me- and metals and mining in the region. They're sending COVID vaccines to there. They're bribing El Sal- reportedly El Salvadoran politicians. Uh, their PLA has engaged in arms sales, military exercises, military education, port calls in Latin America. So I, I'm all for us focusing on the Indo-Pacific and Europe and, and, the, and the Middle East. But we, we have to be truthful and honest about what China is doing in our own backyard and respond accordingly. And that's not all DOD's problem, but it is a DOD problem as well. I know this hasn't been a cheery conversation, but I do think these are urgent ideas that, that, are, that need to be discussed much more. Thank you so much, General McMaster. Always instructive and always useful for me to listen to you and learn from you. Brad, the same to you. Great to have you as a, as a close colleague. Thanks to all of you for being with us, listening to us, and we want to hear your ideas, your thoughts, your criticisms. Please write to us. Thanks again for being with us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening foreign policy.